Hi everyone, this is Sarah McFarland from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today's episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Aaron Phillips from the University of Calgary, who recently joined us for a webinar where he shares his research involving neural hemodynamic control in preclinical and clinical models. Let's dive in. Okay, so let's kick this off. Someone has asked, have you experienced autonomic dysreflexia with stimulation? For example, if you deliver too high of current with transcutaneous or epidural stimulation, could this create a noxious stimuli and thus trigger the AD response? Yeah, so we do not see autonomic dysreflexia occurring with stimulation of the hemodynamic hospital. So part of the key definition of autonomic dysreflexia is in the new autonomic standards guidelines from American Spinal Injury Association, which I'm on the committee of, is it's unregulated. It's unregulated elevations in blood pressure. And by definition, our approach does not meet that definition because we can titrate the level of elevation in blood pressure in in closed loop or open loop, but we can control the blood pressure elevation meaning it doesn't meet the definition for autonomic dysreflexia. Furthermore, most of the autonomic dysreflexia mechanism, as I showed in kind of my later slides, I'm guessing that question came in early, actually involves activation of lumbosacral segments far below the hemodynamic hotspot. It involves activation of afferents there, nociceptive input, nociceptive afferents, so small diameter, not large diameter, plus an ascending excitatory connection into the hemodynamic hotspot. So it's very unlikely that we're able to activate lumbosacral spinal segments with epidural stimulation that's located so much more rostrally up in the hemodynamic hotspot. So for those two reasons, I find it unlikely that we're we're, we're eliciting autonomic dysreflexia. Perfect. Hopefully that answered your question. Okay, next question here. Do you see an added value to measure blood flow in the middle cerebral artery with transcranial Doppler combined with nearest technology in addition to the continuous non-invasive blood pressure? Yes, uh, and we're doing that as part of the trial. I didn't, you could see we're a little tight on time, but I didn't go through all the outcome measures in our trial, but we're looking at brain blood flow, which of course is one of the key pathways associated with the cognitive decline that we see during low blood pressure with the lightheadedness, dizziness, signs of presyncope. So we are capturing blood flow in the brain in response to stimulation. And we did publish N of 1 in the JAMA Neurology paper, actually, that it is coming back up with stimulation during hypotension. But we'll be, as part of the clinical trial, as one of many, many outcome measures, we will be characterizing that in detail. But that's a great point. And I'm thinking just like uh, you are on that uh, point. Perfect. Next question here is, when stimulation is removed, do you see sustained elevated blood pressure response, return to baseline blood pressure, or a worsening hypotension due to autonomic dysfunction? We definitely, so most of our t- t- most of our testing is done upright, so either in the, in the wheelchair or on a tilt table upright. So in that con- in those positions, we typically see blood pressure return down to baseline after we turn stimulation off and we can titrate it in, in real time so that as we do this experiment that we're calling the staircase and you increase stimulation 
amplitude minute by minute and then bring it back down. And we call it staircase because you actually see like a blood pressure response of a staircase as you increase and decrease blood pressure, or sorry, as you increase and decrease stimulation amplitude, blood pressure follows like a staircase pattern. Fantastic. Another question here, were you surprised that the proprioceptive afferents were so sympathoexcitory? This person's just basically said that they wouldn't have expected that. I think potentially, but they're the first neurons to fire in response to electrical current. They have an excitatory interneuron connecting them to sympathetic preganglionic neurons. So in the context of the neuroanatomy, once we understood that, I wasn't surprised. We know that there's some pairing between, we, we've known that there's some pairing between those neurons historically. So, and particularly once we saw the neuroanatomy, I wasn't so surprised with that effect. That's an interesting question. Perfect. Another person has asked, how do you determine what the healthy, quote unquote, healthy blood pressure range is that the stimulator raises a person's blood pressure to? Essentially, how do you know you're not putting the person into sustained hypertension? Mm -hmm. Well, the reality is, is blood pressure changes as we live our daily lives, right? So the American College of Cardiology has their blood pressure standards of 120 over 80, maybe 110 over 80, but that's seated resting for five minutes in a quiet environment and no pressure drugs, et cetera, et cetera. Exercise is a huge pressure stimulus, particularly resistance exercise, but also aerobic. Sleep decreases blood pressure. A great paper came out in Neuron recently showing kind of it's all into the, the sleep response to blood pressure response to sleep is mediated by similar pathways. So we think in the future, this will be titrated based on the needs of the bodies, particularly the skeletal muscle metabolic needs. For us in our current standards, we, we essentially try to keep them at their blood pressure of around 110 over 80 based on the American College of Cardiology guidelines. But we also, part of this experiment is showing the robustness of this approach for in the future being able to regulate blood pressure based across a range of metabolic needs. So we keep it lower than hypertension, but we also want to show that we have the capacity to titrate the stimulation intensity to control blood pressure across a range of needs. Okay, perfect. Someone else has asked, have you measured the parasympathetic response with stimulation? Does it increase as a compens compensatory response to increase sympathetic excitation? That's a good point. We're doing more of that now, as you know, Parasympathetic activity, parasympathetic pathways are largely intact after spinal cord injury, although there are some differences. There's some plastic changes in nucleus ambiguous, which houses the neurons that project out to the heart, for example, parasympathetic neurons. We do see some changes in morphology there that's come out of the Wayne State group. But we haven't actively measured how the parasympathetic nervous system responds to stimulation, but that's part of our uh, protocol now, largely doing non-invasive approaches like, you know, heart rate variability and these types of non-invasive approaches. Perfect. Another question here is, are there any adverse effects to the stimulation in humans? So I get asked this question at every conference. So far, we haven't seen significant adverse events or adverse effects of hemodynamic hotspot stimulation. We do get some contraction in some cases at high intensities of some trunk stability muscles, 
typically we can find a spot where blood pressure is elevated and trunk muscles are not. And we know that the mechanism underlying the pressor response is not dependent on skeletal muscle because we've ran those experiments where we specifically pharmacologically block skeletal muscles from responding and we still get nice blood pressure responses. And in fact, participants tend to like a bit of trunk stability, actually, for activities of daily living, uh, being more upright in their chair, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one of the, not necessarily unexpected, but secondary effects of the stimulation that we see at high intensities. But typically, it's been positive in some cases. Perfect. Another question here. Have you looked at any changes in neuroplasticity in your model for an, in your animal model or in your patients? Yeah, I think probably that question came early. I did touch on that in some of my slides where we're in our model, we're not seeing a lot of restored kind of supraspinal connections, but our, our animal model is quite a complete injury with not that much capacity for restoration of supraspinal descending connection. But we do see, as I showed, a, a large reduction or a meaningful reduction in um, the excitatory interneuron connectome after the spinal cord injury. So that interneuron network becomes hyperexcitable, more excitatory interneurons after spinal cord injury, long-term stimulation tends to normalize and normalize that. So that's, that's one huge effect in terms of plasticity. Great. Another question here. I know you mentioned, or you talked a little bit about this in your talk, but this person has asked, have you tried any stimulation at the cervical or higher thoracic levels of the spinal cord? Yes. Not in humans for hemodynamics. In collaboration with uh, Brian Kwan's group, uh, last summer we set up kind of this epidural stimulation platform and did some stimulation of the really high thoracic segments with a particular interest in modulating cardiac function because we know that the sympathetic preganglionic neurons projecting to the heart are in the high thoracic region. I won't say too much on it because I know it's kind of getting prepared thought of for a paper, but it's pretty interesting what the observations are when you stimulate in the high thoracic segment and look at cardiac contractility, et cetera. Awesome. Another question here. What do you see as the pros and cons of epidural versus transcutaneous stimulation? Have you ever used transcutaneous stimulation in preclinical models? Yeah, so I have a few thoughts on that. I used transcutaneous in human models. This was uh, some field work we did with uh, Reggie Edgerton's group at UCLA. I was first author on a paper a number of years ago for hemodynamics. Epidural stimulation has a surgery. That could be a con in some cases, but it's a fairly routine surgery that's considered a day surgery in most field, most, most hospitals, 40 minutes or so. We know the precision of the spinal segments that it targets. We know that there's a topography of the spinal cord that we have to be aware of when we're stimulating the spinal cord. To date, it's challenging to use transcutaneous stimulation to specifically target a spinal segment. There's still very, there's still significant mechanistic questions in terms of how the current is able to reach the cord or activate essentially skin afferents, and that'll make a big difference in how transcutaneous stimulation is targeted towards specific spinal segments, which we have to keep in mind. So I think there's promise to both techniques, and they probably work 
as a complementary approach, maybe depending on the stage of injury, et cetera. But I really think both are promising, but I think there's some mechanistic questions we have to get around a little bit with transcutaneous stimulations, particularly for hemodynamics. hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work, offer tips, tricks, and best practices, but most of all, share science. Don't forget to subscribe.